Welcome to the first episode of I Don't Know What the Fuck I'm Doing. Stupidly, a guy called Adam Hamway, I want to call him out personally by name, told me I need to do this on my own. I don't know what I'm doing. So I thought I'd just have some booze and, uh, and just try and wing this. But because this is my podium and I get to say anything I want because it's my show and nobody else is here, I want to let you guys know brutally what the Real Vision team told me there would not be. Because I think it's important to know the hardship that involves doing a show like this. Firstly, no Slash Bennington, no lovely Maggie, no paper-handed Princess Elaine, and no Nico, the voice of calm. So there's nobody here to help me. I'm on my own trying to figure out how the hell to run a YouTube channel, people sending me notes on Slack, and a bunch of Google Drive messages of which I don't even know how to operate. I'm also not allowed any flunkies, no hot and cold running towels, no troop of dwarf masseurs, no ice carriers or personal sommeliers, no Botox injections or hair quaffing, no wind machines blowing a gentle breeze to rustle my hair in the manner of an 80s-style Wham! video. And frankly, I'm outraged, but it's a fucking recession out there, people. We all have to do our thing to destroy demand. So I'm going to destroy the demand of our YouTube channel out of spite for my shoddy treatment. Do they not know who I am? So anyway, let's fucking go. Give me what you've got and... Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're not doing this for fun. Well, we kind of are, but I'd love you to subscribe and also hit the like button because it should be a bit of a laugh. So questions. There's about a million questions going on on YouTube right now. So I'm going to just go straight into these. So the first question is. Hello from Thailand. I'm sure you'll do just fine. That's not much of a question. Cheers from Beirut, Lebanon. OK, any question? would be useful here. I'm going to answer a question that I got sent on a Google Doc if I know how to operate it. So first question is going to be, any thoughts on the current status of gold as a store of value? What holds it? What holds its value anymore in this transition where the concept of value itself is changing other than social consensus, sovereign currencies, institutions heavily invested? It's a good question. What role does gold play in the investment landscape. You see, there was a narrative from the 1970s that has been held on to, particularly by boomer types, which is that you see one day this financial prolificacy will create a bull market in gold again. When you look at gold mining stocks since the 80s, they've actually not gone anywhere. When you look at gold, it has risen but it's not risen with inflation. In fact, in real terms, gold's gone nowhere. In fact, it's probably down. The reality is, is gold does a certain thing and it does it really well. Gold works really well when you debase a currency. Remember in the old days, they used to debase gold by clipping the corners off the edge of coins. They don't do that now. What they do is devalue your fiat currency. When you look at a chart, and I've got a global macro investor chart of gold over the last 20 years in a versus a basket of 27 of the largest currencies in the world, excluding the dollar, gold just kind of ratchets higher and it ratchets higher every time there's a devaluation of other currencies. It also works 
okay against the central bank balance sheet. It's not racy, but it kind of does its job. So gold right now, when you've got uh, positive real rates, and they're going up a lot because the bond market's decoupled from everything else, what you've got is a bad environment for gold. The moment the real rates go negative again, that's destroying your future wealth, gold does pretty well. Now, I don't think gold is the best investment to capture this tail risk. I actually think crypto is much better at doing it. I actually think technology stocks are probably better at doing it. But gold is less volatile, so risk adjusted. It's just fine. It's right now, it's just not a good bet. And even though not that many people own it these days, it's not a retail investment vehicle. Sure, in India it is, but even in India, we're seeing the rise of crypto. Actually, the point about India is actually quite interesting, is if you look at gold in terms of rupees, if you look at rupee itself, it's devalued over time. So dollar rupee has been doing that. Then after you adjust it for gold, i.e. Indians buying gold, they've actually outperformed the rupee perfectly. They've maintained their purchasing power over an extended period of time. So it works very well for stuff like that. Works very well for emerging markets and really good for debasement. It's probably not the vehicle if you want to create wealth. It's a vehicle to protect wealth over time. Okay, so that's that first question. I'm going to flip back to YouTube now. Um, oh my God, they're coming so fast I can't read a thing. I saw something said DXY and it scribbled past. DXY, the dollar is in this doom loop um, where it's a game of musical chairs. The musical chairs here are the US is 25% of world GDP. 87% of world trade is in US dollars. Most dollar, most international borrowings are in world are in dollars. The euro dollar market is the epicenter of that. The issue is when the Federal Reserve start taking money out of or liquidity out of the system, it knocks through to this murky world of euro dollars and foreign dollar borrowings, and those weaker borrowers start scrambling for the dollars. And it's a game of musical chairs where somebody gets rug pulled and somebody falls to the floor because there's not enough chairs to go around, not enough dollars. That was Sri Lanka. That started this off, and I tipped you guys all off about it back in March, I think it was. Then after that, we've seen numerous countries go into default or renegotiate with the IMF and the World Bank and others. That's the shortage of dollars. The shortage of dollars is what puts the European banking system under pressure. The shortage of dollars kind of knocks through for the global market. Now, there's another issue going on right now is the U.S., it's trade deficit. If you think of a trade deficit, it's the US buying goods abroad. That's spending dollars elsewhere. So the rest of the world gets those dollars and they get to recycle them into treasury bonds or do other stuff for them, have borrowings against them. When the US runs a smaller deficit, there's less dollars in the global system. So that makes another problem. So you've got liquidity being sucked out and you've got the trade deficit, meaning less dollars are going in the system. Yet in a slowing economy, everyone needs to pay the interest on their debts, so demand rises. That's the mess we're in. Foreign central banks end up having to sell their treasuries to either support their own currency or because they kind of need other things to be able to do with the dollars that they hold. That becomes an issue, or they want to receive the dollars to pay off the interest on their debts. That becomes an issue because it's driving higher interest rates. Right now, the interest rate market has no buyers. There's no buyers of bonds. I've never seen this before. You see, the issue is, is traditionally the buyers for foreign central banks, they're out of the market. The Federal Reserve with quantitative easing, 
they're out of the market. The banks, the biggest bar of all, regulatory purposes meant that they, they can't do it. So cash is piling up in the res um, reserve repo market. So there's trillions sitting in there with nowhere to go, not being put into the system. Um, and the pension system. And the pension system has just taken the biggest loss ever in the 60-40 portfolio. That's the portfolio of equities and bonds, 60% equities, 40% bonds. That was the safest investment style of all, and the entire pensions industry worldwide uses it as its benchmark. We've just had the largest drawdown in the history of that strategy. This is unprecedented. I know everybody looks at the equity market and says, well, the equity market's only down 30% if it's the NASDAQ or 20% if it's the S&P. They're missing the fact that pension portfolio has been obliterated. So if you think what just happened in the UK, in the UK, there was some leverage to cover their liabilities. And with this drawdown, they blow up the pension system and the, and the Bank of England had to come and step in. So that's the dollar problem. The dollar problem is great for the US right now because it means that anything you buy from abroad, particularly the US buys an enormous amounts of finished goods from China, Germany or Europe, um, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. Those are the big industrial nations that export goods. All of their currencies are down between 15 and 30 percent against the US dollar. So the US dollar imports deflation, not inflation from those countries. Those countries are importing inflation. So Japan quashed their bond yields by yield curve control. And that has the knock on effect of them printing more currency, which devalues the yen. So we go back to the previous conversation is, guess what? The, the uh, yen in gold terms or gold in yen looks great because somebody was devaluing their currency and gold helps you nicely sidestep it. So that's a question. Um, what do you think of current university graduates seeking to work for renowned hedge funds such as Millennium, Brevin Howard, Rocos Capital? Is there be, still be money to be made? I left the hedge fund industry back in 2005 because I saw the seeds of its own demise. The game in hedge funds now is not about performance. It's not about the glory days of Soros and Nick Roditi and Stan Druckermiller and Paul Tudor Jones and Lewis Bacon. It's a game of asset gathering. So you are just a pawn in that machine. Even as a portfolio manager, Alan Howard, who's a friend of mine, even used to trade his managers like his positions. If somebody had a great year, he'd get rid of them, knowing that often you're psychologically affected by a great year. I mean, Alan's a great trader. He knows how to trade people as well. But basically, you're a pawn in the game of, um, of assets and not in returns. So sure, you might get a chance to get paid by being a portfolio manager, but it's not a great world. Most people would love to start their own hedge funds, get back to the glory days in macro of you know, 15% volatility, aiming for 30 40% returns. Only people like Chris Benodi can do that because it's his own money. Or... Mike Platt at Bluecrest because it's his own money or Lewis Bacon because it's his own money. Once you're running other people's money these days, you're running it for insurance companies and pension plans and they want you to look like a bond. So sadly, I think the industry's dead. However, in the crypto industry, the hedge fund strategy is alive and well and volatility is fully embraced and loved. So cheers to that. Um, question... When you say the Nasdaq is down 30%, do we add 10% inflation, i.e. it's down 40%? I, in real terms, does that make a difference? If you want, um, I don't think it really makes a difference. It's pain either way um, or opportunity either way, depending which way you look at it. Um, I think you can look at all assets in inflation adjusted terms. 
I've always looked at assets versus Fed balance sheet because I think debasement terms is actually more important. Here's a question from Isaiah Morales. Isaiah, what's the pain trade? The pain trade, I think, is to sucker everybody in and thinking there's a great glory collapse to come. The I told you so moment in earnings are going to get revised lower. Well, all I do know is people are record negative sentiment. They're more negative than I've ever seen ever in any history. I wrote a big article in Global Macro Investor, my institutional research survey about, service about this. They're super negatives. People are super hedged. Put vol volumes have been incredibly high. So I think the path of pain is to go lower, suck more people into short, and then rip higher. And it would rip higher because bond yields start to fall as they start finally recoupling for the business cycle. Bond yields have massively decoupled from the ISM survey. That's a relationship that's gone back 50, 60 years, including the last inflation episode. It's decoupled from inflation break-evens. It's decoupled from economic growth by any measure. The bond market to me is broken. Um, it is a, now a function of illiquidity because nobody's involved in the market and there's only sellers. And I think it's going to cause some tremendous problems. And that eventually is going to create the answer. And the answer to everything is always more cowbell. The UK showed it, more cowbell, print more money, get us out of this problem. When people say they'll keep hiking until it breaks, well, when it breaks, more cowbell. You know, it's all, the whole system is now set up for one cry, which is more cowbell, turn the taps back on. Uh, it's a sad state of affairs, but that's how it is. But you can trade that to your advantage. Trading it to your advantage is understanding when that shift comes and what it does for risk assets. Um, it's, it's very attractive. Uh, smash the like button, says Josh. Josh, thank you for reminding me. Please keep reminding me to smash the like button and also the subscribe button. I'm not doing this for the hell of it. Well, I kind of am, as I mentioned to you before, but I'd really like you guys to be able to get updates when we send this amazing content out on the uh, Real Vision YouTube channel. Are you bullish on Mexico from Elias Gut? Strange name. Um, Mexico on the new shoring. Yes, it's been a story that Mark Hart and Real Vision talked about a long time ago. I think it's a real trend. And I think the US needs to stay closer to its allies. And Mexico is a true ally. You know, it's got energy from Canada. It's got cheaper labor force from Mexico. And if it goes even further south, there's more opportunities, whether it's um, agriculture from Brazil and, um, and um, Argentina, of which the US has plenty of agriculture, but also oil from Venezuela. And we're seeing movements along that too. Frank Tom Ocean, Frankie boy, Solana. Yes, I like Solana. Yes, I understand it keeps breaking. Yes, I also understand that everybody knows that. So there is no informational edge in that whatsoever. And therefore, if it survives breaking and it's one of the largest crypto protocols and it has more activity than any other chain outside of Ethereum, then the likelihood that Solana participates well in the next ep cycle is very high to me. So I like Solana. It's one for me. Um, do you have Elliott Waves or DMARC counts for S&P 500 or ETH? And that was from, I'm losing them. Come back, come back. See, this is why I shouldn't be in charge. Javi, Javi Medina. Javi, gracias. Um, yes, I do. Let me have a look at the DMARC counts for the NASDAQ. Most things, DXY, bonds, equities, all give us the potential for another set of daily down counts over the next couple of weeks. 
So daily counts don't give us anything to lean against. But what's getting really interesting is DMARC, and we've got coming on Real Vision as part of the Real Vision Academy, an incredible series by Tom DMARC himself teaching you DMARC indicators. You don't get that anywhere else in the world. Tim is an, Tom is an unbelievably talented person. DMARCs I can't live without, um, and we are really incredibly privileged to have that. So anyway, the DMARC counts are all counting to nines and thirteens on the weekly across all asset um, all, all asset classes over the next two to three weeks. So I'm looking at the Nasdaq futures right now. We're on a uh, seven count, which should get to a nine, and we're on a. We've already got one thirteen in place. We've got another ten on its way. So we could probably count to a 13. So we're in the two to three weeks. So October feels like it's a volatile month. It feels like we've got downside, sharp downside to come. Then we get the reversals. Maybe we've broken something bigger. So thank you, Javi, for that one. Um, let's see. What's your favorite wine region? Crypto Man 976. Much better fucking question. I don't care about macro. It's a Friday night. Uh, my wine region favorite is, as everybody knows, if you haven't read my tweet thread on it, you must do, is Rioja. So just go into Twitter, look at Ralph Al Rioja, and I explain to you why it's such an amazing wine region and how old school Riojas are the most undervalued wines in the world. Outside of that, I like Ribera del Duero in Spain as well. It's a, If Rioja is more like, old style Rioja is more like um, um, red burgundy from France, um, you'll find that the Ribera de Duero's are more like Bordeaux, again, cheaper. Some of them are really quite expensive, however. So that's my Spanish one. I'm currently drinking a Chacolí. Chacolí is a kind of fresh, light, salty, young wine from uh, Galicia in Norman, northern Spain. Um, it's a nice kind of low alcohol wine, which is why we kick it off at 4.30 in the afternoon with a low alcohol white wine. Um, and it's slightly salty because it comes from near the sea, so it goes really well shellfish. So I love Chacolí, but my white wine favourite is I'm a white burgundy fanatic as well. So those are things like um, Polini Montrachet, Chassin Montrachet, um, Chablis Premier Cru. Those are my gig. Um, I, they're, they're my go-to wines. I'm a huge champagne fan as well. So I drink a, a lot of champagne. It's probably my most go-to wine of all, the champagne, uh, of which I think... My favourite of all, and this sounds a bit wanky, is, is Dom Perignon. Uh, I really like vintage champagnes. Um, I'm a huge fan of Bollinger, and Bollinger Rosé is like the dog's bollocks. If you don't want to pay for that, I'll drink buckets full of Carver, Spanish sparkling wine made in the method Champenoise way. It's an incredible, incredible, um, cheap, high-quality thing. It's not like bullshit Prosecco. I know... Alf thinks that Italy is the greatest place in the world, but actually Spain has better wine and better food. And that's a fact. And I will not argue with him about it. There's, a, there's like 58 questions from the same people. CAG asking about XRP, Devletti, XRP, 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 XRP. I, somebody on Ripple, XRP, Eccentric, XRP. So obviously there's a bunch of XRP people who thought they'd come on this to try and hijack it to get me to talk about XRP. I'm long a bit. I think it's like a special situation. I think the court case gets resolved positively and it goes up. So I'm fine with it. I have no issue with it. It's a very used, it's actually a very used protocol. Um, it's got, um, you know, by using Metcalfe's law, it's pretty decent. The only thing Americans can't invest in it because it got taken off the exchanges. But generally speaking, it does what it's supposed to be doing. It's working as a payment transmission payment. I have no issue with it. Uh, there's plenty of activity on chain and Metcalfe's law prices it pretty much appropriately to where it is. So that's that one. Um, inflation versus deflation from Frank Kidenya. 
Frankie boy, another Frankie boy. Um, inflation, deflation. Um, clearly, we're in inflation right now. You have to be a blind monkey not to realize that. Um, I actually didn't think it would go this high, but I also didn't actually have in my bingo card Russia invading Ukraine. But we get these things wrong. That's the part of markets. Um, my view is that this inflation turns to deflation. I know there's a massive analysis of structural inflation driven by um, supply issues in the oil markets. So we could see that today, this fight that goes on between supply and demand. Um, I know a lot of people um, think that much of this is stickier. I know a lot of people also just emotionally want to punish the Fed for quantitative easing because they want to prove that it has inflation. Those tend to be the gold types. We told you so, angry men shaking fist at the sky on the internet. Uh, my view is that when you have a year-on-year -year rate of change of interest rates like this, when you have um, just the mathematical effects of uh, these numbers for next year, it's bloody hard to have positive inflation. And my guess is it goes negative. And my guess is a recession causes more demand destruction. Um, what are your thoughts? So call me Papa. All right, Papa. What's your thoughts on the Dragon TV series? You keep flying by. There's too many questions. I uh, haven't watched it. House of Dragon. haven't watched it yet, unfortunately. So I can't add to that one. Um, Ah, here's a good question. Hussein. Hussein um, Rezai, question. I'd love to know how your thesis would change if we see a large up move in the oil markets in the next few months and how it affects risk assets. This is a bloody complicated macro multivariant question. So right now, the forces at play in the oil market are reduced supply and reduced demand. I said that demand would overwhelm the supply issues, and that's been true. Oil price has been coming off from 120, got down to 70-something last week. Rebounded. Why? Because the Saudis like, no, fuck you. We're going to put up the price of oil again. And and Biden's like, no, we're going to sell our oil from our SDR. So, uh, SBR. So we've got this fight going on, this geopolitical fight about what is the fair value price of oil. Obviously, the markets aren't allowed to set oil. If you think the interest rate markets are crooked by the central banks, meet OPEC. So we've got that going on. Um, the question is going to be, OK, if we get a recovery now, what happens to the price of oil? Well, if economic growth comes back now, well, then oil is going higher. If I'm right and economic growth continues lower for the next six months or so and sharply lower, then we'll have eroded enough demand in oil that it won't come back as fast. Now, what really matters for inflation is the rate of change of oil. Does it get back over $120? I don't think so. It's possible. But if it does it, it has to do it slower. If it does it slower, then the rate of change in inflation won't come in anywhere near here. We will see inflation in the next cycle. We see inflation every cycle. But I, my bet is it is not as sticky and as high as people expect. People have this 1970s narrative because that's all they know. Um, generally speaking, I don't think that's going to be the case because we're missing baby boomer demand in the global equation. So you're trying to create a supply-driven inflation shock that lasts, and that generally doesn't tend to last. Okay. Um, question. Top three DeFi projects by C. It's not much of an engaging name, but C. The question is, I don't know. Um, I'm not a big DeFi person. I'm not a big yield person. Um, but, you know, I look at the chart. You know, I own a bit of Uniswap. Um, I own a bit of Aave. Um, um, they're pretty good. Um, but if not, DeFi is not my bag. Um, Kurt, Raoul, do you think about BRICS? Hold on. Kurt, come back, come back. Kurt Mook. Hi, Raoul. Do you think about BRICS 
Um, has it any effects on markets crashing? Will it affect a bigger... Okay, let's try and get a sentence out of this. Hi, Ral. Do you think about BRICS? Has it any effect on markets crashing? And will it affect Bitcoin price? I don't understand any of the question. But thank you, Kurt. I appreciate the, the attempt at a question. Um, striking Media, LLC. Will we have a depression? No. Why? Because we have the magic bullet, which is debasement of currency. And guess what? Asset prices go up. So not going to happen. Mohit, Mohit Gabba. When is the Fed going to pivot? Your best guesstimate. If you had to pick a month, gun to your head. Last rate rise, November. Um, yeah, that's that's my best bet. Pivot, for me, just stop. Once you stop, I'll call that the pivot because the markets will start pricing the others. Um, Kerry Coates, what happens when the DXY exceeds 120? Well, it depends when it does it. If it does it now, then that will be the last, the fastest rate of change in the dollar in all history. That's very disruptive because there's a shortage of dollars. It creates a debt crisis elsewhere. It probably continues to break the bond markets and it also breaks other economies. It is going to force people to force the Fed to the table to say we need swap lines and we need you to ease liquidity because this cannot last. Um, also, when you allow the dollar to go up that much, you increase the probability that China and others will start to push to move away from this dollar system. Even the Europeans want to get away from a dollar system. So the US can have a strong currency. If it goes a too strong currency, my point has always been they sow their seeds of their own demise of the dollar as the reserve standard, and we will bifurcate and multiply different currency systems for different use cases. Shading Carr, Guy Harvey fan, isn't he a big art? Big in art where you're from. Shailen, uh, Guy's a personal friend. Uh, I love the guy. He does an incredible amount for marine uh, conservation. He's very active in Little Cayman. He's a sponsor of the uh, Central Caribbean Marine Institute, where I've been on the board, which is a charity there that looks after the marine life. Uh, I'm, I own a couple of Guy Harvey things. I'm not the biggest fan of his art, but Americans seem to love it. So he can sell as much as he wants because he keeps investing it back in the wildlife into the marine life here uh, and helping it. And he's a lovely, lovely guy. So thank you for that question. Okay, finding more questions. Anthony Beaven, thoughts on BRICS and de-dollarization. Saudi joining surely means oil won't be just priced in the dollar, plus the accumulation of gold by the BRICS nations equal hyperinflation. No. <sighs> So de-dollarization I talked about is a slow, gradual process that will happen over time. They have to figure out what to price it in right now, and we don't have an answer. The Chinese have a closed capital account, so we can't use the RMB. So maybe there's a basket currency that needs to happen. So we don't have a mechanism by which we can create a different pricing mechanism for stuff like oil. They all do want to move away, as I've said. You know, why should South Africa export minerals or metals to China and have to have the dollar in the middle of it. It makes no sense, but that's the system we've got. So it will change, and it's not going to mean hyperinflation. It means the dollar goes much, much higher because this ends up being a shortage of dollars because all the debt is in dollars. So you take these dollar 
these other dollars out of the market and you've got an even bigger shortage of dollars. So that creates a big fucking structural problem for the world. So we need to be careful when that happens. Um, and then the US becomes a lower impact from the world. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't think it leads to hyperinflation. Um, I don't see where that the dot, dot, dot hyperinflation comes from. It's a very, very rare thing. Could it happen that people lose faith in the US? Yeah, but luckily we've all got cryptocurrencies, gold and a few other things to protect us. So who really cares? That is delicious, by the way. And I'm nibbling on um, toasted pumpkin seeds with a with a nice um, salt from Ibiza. Okay, next question. From Django Geek. Question. Is it unwise to start investing while you still have personal debt? No, it's not. Um, you can have debt and invest, I think. But you'd need to keep an eye on if you can pay off debts, great. But leverage works for many people. I've always been nervous of it because once you own an asset, nobody can take it away from you. But you need to get up somewhere up on the next ladder. And sometimes you run debt and you run investments too. And what you're trying to do is hope that, that what you've bought with the debt goes up in value over time and your investments go up in time. Just You just have to be cognizant and be careful. Excess leverage is a bad thing. Leverage for a house plus investments, not a bad thing. Um, you know, houses go up over time due to, you know, demand. Okay. Ah, John Purr, your top three favorite comedy movies. The Princess Bride. Dirty Scoundrels, massively, massively underappreciated as one of the fucking funniest films of all time. Um, and I probably take, it's so old and cheesy, but the life of Brian's still bloody funny. Monty Python still deserves something. But I think if you haven't watched um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, it's an elegant, old school, amazing, really, really funny comedy. And you can comment about Ruprecht on Twitter when you want to. Um, okay, interesting question from Trexel, Drexel Trussell. That's a difficult one to say off a glass of wine. Question, how big a deal is the growth of passive on price structure? Uh, as Mike Green says, it's enormous. Because if, you're, if you've got a basket of stuff, which is the whole stock market, and people are only buying the stuff in the S&P 500 because they do it to put in the 401k on a kind of dollar cost averaging basis, over time, they will outperform. And it breaks things like value investing. Um, and a whole bunch of other things where people still cling on to how the price structure of the markets were in the past, it changes dramatically. Very difficult to change that dynamic when you've got 86 million millennials all about the age of 32 years old. That price structure is not going to change for a while. Um, the only thing that changes it on a periodic basis is when people lose their jobs, they stop investing in 401k. So if you get large job losses, you'll, you'll get um, um, a pause in passive flows and that can recorrect stuff and create some violence in markets. Um, but I think it's a it's a big ongoing basis and it continues to suck in capital and distort financial markets for a long time. Um, okay. When does stock borrow, um, so Nyquist LP, when does stock bond correlation end? Um, they always shift in time. Sometimes they're correlated, sometimes they're negatively correlated. It's not something that can, 
really fusses me right now it's painful because obviously when they both fall you've got no place to hide apart from cash um, and then you lose 10% due to inflation so you're kind of fucked either way um, there's a lot of swearing today by the way so I hope you don't mind um, so stock burst of bond correlation turns around usually turned around in 2018 we had this positive correlation so bond yields were rising and equities were falling uh, that happened for a while until equities shut the bed and bonds reversed very sharply as they realized the Fed were going to pivot. It's the Fed pivot moment again, all over different ways. Um, Mahogany, do you have a favorite hip hop or R&B artist? Well, there's The Roots. I do like The Roots. I'm a big fan of Jay-Z. Um, I'm a big fan of um, Wu-Tang Clan. Um, it's kind of it's all a bit 90s. Kendrick Lamar, like Kendrick a lot. Um, not big Kanye, stuff like that. So Snoop, um, Dre, the kind of 90s stuff, but, you know, I'm an old bloke. Uh, let's see. Trade, Trader Trav. Trav, question, how does Metcalfe's law reflect in the price of a token? So Metcalfe's law is the number of users of a network and basically the number of interconnections between the network. So you can have a network like Doge, which just has users and no connections. I, it's not being used for anything. Or you can have a network like Ethereum, which has a huge amount of two. If um, Bitcoin is mainly um, um, holders, hodlers. So different networks can be different ways. The Holy Grail is, is both together, both growing. What it means is a network is incredibly valuable if people want to own it and want to use it. When you've got the owning and using numbers growing, then the, val the network is valuable. And that's how Metcalfe's law works. And almost all of the crypto protocols work in exactly the same way. And they're pretty much priced fairly according to uh, Metcalfe's law. You know, you can use estimations of Metcalfe's law, but you generally find that they don't deviate a lot. So even things like XRP, like, oh, fucking hell, I hate XRP. Well, it actually works because the transaction volumes are low in individual size transactions, but there's a lot of them and there's a fair number of users. So that means that um, it's, it has a certain worth. Bitcoin has less transactions than Ethereum by a massive amount, but the size of the transactions is very big. So that, that gives you some elements of why Bitcoin is so valuable because it's a valuable network. It's like, you know, you can sell handbags or you can sell, or you can sell um, Louis Vuitton handbags or Chanel handbags. That network is worth more than selling cheap high street handbags at Zara, for example. Um, Suresh Singh. Suresh, I don't know if you're the same Suresh as on Twitter, but can you share more about Nick Raditi, the trader that he was, and how he managed the huge PL swings and how he did position sizing? I mean, for those of you who don't know, Nick Raditi was a unique character in the history of the hedge funds. He was, according to George Soros and Stan Druckermiller, he was the best hedge fund manager at Soros in the glory days. Nick was from Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, and he was a very gentlemanly character. And he became famous when nobody knew about him back in about 1991, where he became the highest made pa paid man in England. And everyone's like, huh, who's this guy? So the press went to find him. And he works above a shop in Hampstead High Street, a, a posh suburb of London. And it's kind of weird 
But that's Nick. If you ever went to see Nick, he'd ask you the first thing, oh, how did you get here? Innocent question, not an innocent question. If you said, I caught a taxi, he would just look at you, this investment banker wasting money coming here in a taxi, get out. You had to say, I came on the tube and then I caught the number seven bus and then I came here. Then he'd think, yes, you're the right kind of person to deal with. He used to throw people out of the office, but he was a macro guy. And he would be a macro thesis driven guy that didn't use Paul Tudor Jones's philosophy of stop losses and, um, you know, the risk management in the way that you think of it. He had an idea risk management and he would place ridiculously gigantic bets when he knew everything lined up. And when he made when he saw the position was working, he would be immensely aggressive. And he was an older gentleman and he was the most aggressive risk taker with the most leverage at Soros. He had the highest volatility and the highest returns of all of the managers. But he'd also have 30% drawdowns, which Stan couldn't stomach and George didn't stomach. But Nick was like, yeah, well, I don't care. Um, Nick was an astonishingly good person who could join the dots. He was also a polymath. So a polymath is somebody who is a deep expert on multiple things that are kind of unconnected. So you go into his office and he had this collection of Korean porcelain from 200 years ago, the world's greatest collection. In fact, when I was there once, we had some museum taking notes about his pieces. And he would know more about that than anybody else in the world. He knew more about Korean history than almost anybody else. So when these investment strategists from Goldman or somebody would come in and talk about South Korea, he would quiz them on Korean um, economic history going back 150 years. If they didn't know the answers, he'd throw them out the door. I once went in there to talk about agriculture to him about, this was 2007, about the agricultural boom that I thought was, was coming and we were just starting. And he said, he said, oh, that's very interesting, Raoul. He said, um, that reminds me of paper I saw back in 67, I think it was. Let me see, I haven't seen it since then. And he goes across, finds out this old file, opens it up, dusts it down and goes, yes, it was 67. Yes, well, in this paper, they talk about weak productivity. It's really interesting to see how it's played out. That's the mind he had. He could remember everything. So on that agricultural bet, I'm like, he said, and I, I'd start an agriculture hedge fund, which was a stupid thing to do. I will never trade agriculture again because it's terrifying, mean reverting and just awful. Um, but anyway, that's another story for another day. So Nick says, you know, I'm in the ag trade as well. I, I believe in your thesis, but I'm not going to invest in your hedge fund because I'm running the risk myself. He said so much so that I took my long suffering wife and I drove across the entire corn belt of America to see what it felt like, what these fields were, what it was all about, so I could understand it properly. He said, I then took a plane, chartered a plane and flew over the Ukraine and southern Russia to get an understanding of the magnitude of the wheat belt there and what that meant to world global supply. That was the level of detail of which he understood his trades. Um, but then he would be reckless in how he took risk. So one time he thought interest rates were going lower in Europe and he was early and he was often early. And I remember him calling up the desk at Goldman, having put on a gigantic position like six weeks prior. He calls up and it's like, um, it was to a guy called Mark. And they said, Mark, um, those Bund thingies I bought, 
obviously he knew the name, what they were, but that was just Nick. Sort of just dismissive. Those bun things. I, where are they now? And Mark's like, well, I'm sorry, Nick. They're like three points against you. He was down like $500 million or something. And he's like, oh, that's rather unfortunate. I think we should just double up and puts the phone down. That was Raditi. Uh, and then he'd be right. So anyway, Nick Raditi, a legend, amazing guy, still alive, uh, still comes to Cayman occasionally. Um, his family office is based here, um, but not in great health. So I tried to get him on Real Vision a few times. Sadly, uh, not going to happen, but a true legend of the industry. Um, so thank you for asking the question, Suresh. Um, Chris Rubel. Oh, Chris, I've lost your question. Um, the question was something about what the most exciting things happening at Real Vision. Uh, thank you for that. I like a layup question, and I appreciate talking about Real Vision because you fuckers are watching this, and you need to take in something about Real Vision too. Like, hit the like button, the subscribe button, and maybe pay the $99 for a Real Vision subscription, you cheapskates. We don't do this for nothing, you know. We've got to pay the bills. Poor old Nico needs to be kept in expensive wine, um, as does Brian Caputo, long-suffering, and Nick as well. So those guys need to have nice wine, and you need to pay for a subscription. It's $99, so get on with it. Um, the... Um, Real Vision has got an enormous amount of Web3 activity going on. Um, so we have the Real Vision Genesis NFT, which already has created like $15 million of value for the owners. Um, but that's just the start of where this is going. It's not about creating a, a flipping coin. It's actually about the genesis of our Web3 community and where it goes. We're starting all sorts of initiatives we announced today. Some of them, we're going to be starting a... Um, a kind of an NFT group for fantasy leagues of trading, of which we'll start selecting trading managers. We might be able to back them with capital. Um, there is um, the Real Vision token is coming at some point, which will be used as the utility token, the system of payment for a bunch of abilities for everybody to build businesses on top of the Real Vision network. We're building up that an entire new platform. Education keeps rolling out, keeps coming. We've just launched five or six different shows for Real Vision Essential. We're about to launch an incredible newsletter for Real Vision Essential that's free within $99, and it's probably a $500 newsletter. You get that free too. Uh, we've been hosting Real Vision meetups. These are these mini live events around the world. We just did 12 cities around the world, um, and those are free. And you get to hang out with other Real Vision people, meet the community. We've set up Discord channels, Discord channels for that, Discord channels for the Real Vision Daily Crypto Briefing. There's the Daily Crypto Briefing is coming. I mean, there is so much going on. We are flat out with building out value for members, um, building out new shows, building out new um, platform, new tech experiences, new X, UX, new Web3 experiences, uh, building out. We've built, we bought a family office network. We're building out a family office network. Uh, that's called Le Club B. It's one of the most prestigious networks in the world. And we're going to help develop family offices um, and, and servicing that community. Really what we're doing here secretly before, people don't really know is we're building the super community of finance of all of these communities from crypto to family offices to students to India, Real Vision India we've just launched and we're going to build the super platform of finance too so everybody has one place to live their financial lives. You'll hear a lot more about that in the future but we've got a lot of work to do to get there. So anyway, thank you for the question um, and if you want any of that shit, $99 please, that would be very nice, thank you very much or if you're too much of a cheapskate, the $1 trial will work just as well because 70, 60% of people who take a trial stay because it's bloody good. So that's my pitch. Um, Andrew L, have you researched Algorand? One better than that, Algorand debates here in the Cayman Islands and I've had drinks with the CEO. Thank you for the question. Next. Uh, and yes, Algorand's great. Um, I don't own any, however. Um, 
Question on aging demographics by Isaac MK. Is it inflationary or deflationary? <laughs> My view is strongly, and I can prove it with a ton of charts, that is massively deflationary. Very simply, very simply, when my father retired, you are fixed pool of capital, unknown length of time to live. Rational human, I will throttle the amount of capital so I don't die destitute at 85. Fact. Pool of capital, never as much as the income you used to earn beforehand, spending goes down. Fear of living long, spending goes down, so it's massively contractionary. There is a school of thought that says, oh, well, it's inflationary because they spend all their capital. A, they don't. They pass it on to their kids. Their kids are so fucked they have to buy houses with that capital. It's not like they're going to go spend it on ski holidays. So I don't believe that story. I know that paper that's gone around. It's the only paper that changed a few people's line, minds, including people like Kirill Sokolov. I don't believe it. I see no evidence of it anywhere in the world. Suddenly that paper came out saying, hey, it's all OK. It's going to be it's going to be slightly inflationary to have a bunch of people dying. No, it's never, never, ever, ever is. So I don't believe it. Um, Raul, cheers. Um, Jay Broad, 61 CPA. I'll cheers to you. In fact, I'm going to refill my drink. Catch up. I'm about half a bottle in now, so you guys are all behind. As I said, I should not be given control over this, but they didn't give me any of my flunkies, including the troop of dwarf masseur, so I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. Um, Joe King, pay for subscription, yeah, right, it's the age of free, free information. Listen, motherfucker, it's not the age of free information. You're getting monetized by the advertising agencies. Your information is being sold everywhere online by people in ways that you don't understand. Every time you click online, you're being shown stuff that is actually somebody else inside your head using artificial intelligence. You can accept that, or you can accept a high quality curated community of people who actually care. Now, it's not just the information itself, it's the community that which you operate. And if you want to have the tools and experiences of which being a real vision member or a member of any quality um, subscription based service, well, you don't get it otherwise. But we care about YouTube too. We care about people that can't afford it and people who just want to figure out, is this good enough? Do I want to pay for it? So we really deeply care about YouTube. But don't give me the everything should be free. I deserve it. I'm sorry, you have no rights in this world to deserve anything. None of us do. We just do the best that we can. We have to pay our staff and we don't want to monetize everything via a million ads. So I would now stop and say, hey, get Joe's peanuts. They're the best peanuts in the world. Really? Is that the experience you want? So come on, be reasonable. At 99 bucks, you pay more than that and bloody coffee. Um, so that's the end of my rant on that one. Manuel Music. What's your macroeconomic view for the next one to five years? My macroeconomic view for the next one to five years is I'm going to start one year ahead. We are recovering. We are coming out of recession. Asset prices are fine. The world is worried. Do we get inflation back or not? Five years time, technology is, continues its relentless rise. Cryptocurrencies continue its relentless lies, um, rise. The baby boomers are retiring and starting to die. Growth has ratcheted down. GDP growth is a very simple equation. GDP is population growth plus productivity growth. Population growth is shrinking. Uh, immigration is politically unacceptable in an age of not enough jobs because of robots and AI. 
Productivity is the robots and AI. That's going to be the new demographics, replacing the lost workers. It won't repl replace them at scale, but eventually we get to the tipping point where it's much cheaper to employ a robot. Look at Amazon. They've employed something like uh, 750,000 new people over the last four years, excuse me, and they've employed uh, employed 500,000 robots in the last five years. The robots work three times as many hours because they don't take a break, they don't take holidays, and they're more productive. Uh, that is relentless and that is not going to stop. So inflation lower growth, I think, actually, we might change the trend rate of growth at some point in the next 10 years uh, when we're running negative real rates to erode the debt, which is good for asset prices. But also, I think the rise of technology can potentially change the trend rate of growth over time. But we've got to get through this inflection point as the population shrinks. And eventually, over time, GDP per capita is going to rise. Um, but that's a longer term view. So I'm actually very positive over the next one to five years. Somewhere within that, we'll have another recession. I think recessions are going to come shorter than they did in the 2000s. Um, so every three years or so, as we're still dealing with the kind of rebound effects of the whole COVID pandemic era. Okay. <laughs> DC faux pas, crypto continues its relentless lies. <laughs> Rise, sorry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, well caught. Um, oh, so quick, what's the beef with Hedge Eye or Keith? That's a great question. I've no idea. I had no problem with Keith whatsoever. He just started picking on me. Um, I don't know what it was, but I think he just wants to get the attention by there's some people who like to be inclusive and other people like to be exclusive. It's the way they operate. And I think he just he likes to create an enemy. So he's got somebody to fight. You know, the US does this a lot. You know, it creates a new enemy every day. So then it can, it's got a bad guy. I have no beef with Keith. You know, Keith does a good job doing what he does. Um, you know, his personality online is a little bit stronger than I would like to be. Um, I'm not that kind of guy. So good good luck to him, and I hope he does well. I have no issue. Um, what about your upbringing inspired you to get into finance, Mahogany? Uh, that's a great question. The honest answer is I, I, I grew up in the 80s. Everyone was driving Porsches, and they were popping champagne, and it was the time of Gordon Gecko. I was like, yeah, I want that. My dad was in marketing, and I never forget, I went to um, – a friend of my dad's where I graduated university. I really wanted to be in finance because I just thought it looked cool and it sounded cool. And I read finance books like Barbarians at the Gate. I'm like, I want to be part of that stupid, naive idiot. Um, and um, I spoke to a friend of dad's and he was like, I was I was just finishing university. He said, what are you going to do after university, Ralph? Now, I was graduating in a recession, 1990, a recession not dissimilar to this one um, that we're going into right now. Uh, and finance tipped out tons of jobs. And um, I'm like, well, I'm kind of, I'd love to go into finance, but there's no real jobs or marketing because, you know, dad was in marketing. I like marketing um, and I'm kind of interested in it. And he looked at me and said, it's a really simple choice, Ralph. He said, you can work for an amazing marketing company like Coca-Cola and you can get free drinks. Or you can work for a bank and you can get free money. And I realized that the wage arbitrage was so gigantic that if I could do it, it would be a much better use of my personal capital, my time and effort to go into it. And I was interested in it. So and it and that paid off in spades. I don't think that exists as well in finance as it does anymore. 
product managers in Silicon Valley did very well. Data scientists, I think, will do very well over time. And I think anybody in crypto does very well over time. And anybody in the right wave in technology will do exceptionally well because these are secular things. I was in the secular wave of financialization. That wave came to a crashing halt in 2008. And everybody who's been in that industry since has been miserable. It's kind of like a the pie is not growing. So you have to eat each other to get your share of the pie. Go to somewhere where the pie is growing. Crypto is one of them. Technology is another. Biotech sciences are another. Uh, India is another. The Middle East is another. These these are pies that grow. Get involved in that. Don't get involved in the oil industry. It's a pie that's shrinking over time. It's just pointless because all you're doing is swimming against the tide and you end up old and bitter when you've been spat out of the industry in your 50s and you don't have a pension to account for. Um, okay, Shuna. Raoul, have you ever visited the wine areas in Australia? I recommend it. That's a ridiculous question. Um, obviously, I've hung out in Margaret River, um, Cape Mentel, great wine, um, and been to Australia many times. But Margaret River is actually the only region I've, I've spent time in, in wine regions in Australia. So yes, love Australian wines. Penfold Grange. I've got some old Penfold Granges, and they're some of my favourite wines in the world. Um, Joss Richardson, why is this not the unwind of the everything bubble? Great question, because that's all I see everywhere. The everything bubble is going to unwind. Everyone's going to get their comeuppance. This is a narrative driven by people who missed out on what's been happening. It's the narrative of the fear of change, whether it's technology, cryptocurrencies, a whole bunch of things. So therefore, everything looks like an everything bubble to them because they want the glory days of the P's of eight and value stocks to come back and gold to be rising. That's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because of one single thing, the central bank balance sheet. So the central bank balance sheet changes the value of the denominator. So all assets go up. It's not a bubble in assets. It's a bubble in central banks. So what you're creating is the illusion that assets are going up. But when you look at gold versus real estate versus um, versus copper versus all of these assets, they're all rough and equities. They're all roughly in line with each other. They always trade in big bands, but they're all, nothing looks out of whack. Everything looks out of whack versus the dollar. Why? Because the dollar's being devalued. That's the issue you've got here. And that's what people need to get their heads around. So the everything bubble is not the everything bubble. Everyone's looking at it with the wrong eyes. Um, it's actually the assets um, are, are going up because the denominator has gone down. Once you divide everything by the central bank balance sheet, and I know people can't get their heads around this, they think it's mumbo jumbo, hocus pocus. It's not. It actually works out by pretty much every measure. And I've written pages and pages and pages on this. Is What's really interesting is when you do divide everything by the central bank balance sheet, what outperforms the debasing of fiat currencies? Only two things in the world. The two things are cryptocurrency. Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, and tech stocks, because they are both secular trends in technology. Nothing else outperforms the Fed balance sheet. So even real estate, pretty much sideways. So it does its job. You maintain wealth. You do not make wealth. Sure, real estate, you take leverage. It goes up in line with the central bank balance sheet. You make money over time from the leverage, because also debasing the value of your debt is, is, is important. 
JMP1, thoughts on the Dubai hedge fund industry? My thoughts on Dubai are massively, massively positive. UAE, Saudi Arabia, massively positive. The hedge fund industry there, don't know, crypto industry there, extremely positive. XRP price position. Why does everyone ask for XRP? I have no bloody clue. As I said, I'm long. Special situation is going to go higher. Um, when is the first airdrop for pro crypto NFT holders? Uh, don't know. Um, there will be airdrops. Um, and it depends what that is. The Real Vision token obviously is coming. Um, the next communities will coming. How that plays with the airdrop there with the community members, I don't know. Moritz H is the guy, the Real Vision bot guy. Um, he's amazing. He runs all of our Web3 stuff. Um, it is coming. There is endless value accruing to that NFT. If you haven't found the NFT on OpenSea, it's the uh, Real Vision Genesis NFT. Right now, the discounts alone in subscriptions are worth more than the bloody token is. It's like... There's at least two ETH in just discounts alone in the membership. So my tip is, and I own this, full disclosure, and it's a real vision thing, so I'm shilling it. So take it as a shill, so short it if you want. Uh, it's massively undervalued. Um, okay, final question, because we're now into the hour. Do you like Hugh Hendry podcast? I love Hugh Hendry um, and I don't really listen to many of his podcasts, but I, just, I love Hugh. I love Hugh. We have difference of views from here and there. He's a mad, crazy island boy. I'm an island boy. Um, and um, we've grown up together in the macro industry. So I have not a bad thing to say about Hugh whatsoever. He worries about me owning cryptocurrency because he wanted me to have sold out at the highs. I've gone through in detail of how I've traded crypto since 2013. And I found actually buying a holding and adding on dips actually compounded returns much better than using my macro finesse to time things. Uh, okay. Okay, I'm stopping. All right, last one. I'm just trying to stop this bloody feed. You've got so many questions, you guys. Um, Raoul, what's your thought on going long QQQ, TQQQ, three times leverage? Ocean A, what a ridiculous question. You know I don't care for leverage. It's your issue if you want to do that. Um, I've just told you also that I think the NASDAQ goes lower over the next two to three weeks. So I don't know why you're asking a ridiculous question. Uh, what Noah, however, asked, what signs are you looking for to buy equities again, specifically tech, QQQ, semiconductors, etc.? Truth is, as of early, I scaled into a basket of what I call exponential age technologies. That's everything from robotics to gaming to metaverses to crypto stocks to um, Internet of Things to um, semis to all of this stuff, all of this stuff that plays this mega trend. I averaged in over June. I kind of got near the I was actually a bit early. I was back May. So I'm down 15 percent or so in that basket right now. Um, this is for global macro investor and macro insiders. Um, I will probably add to it. I'm waiting for that final signal in the NASDAQ. I'm using, I, I note the record bearishness. Um, I note how every single person I respect and know just thinks everything's going to go to shit and it's the end of the world. Um, I am now waiting for the final DMARC signal that I think will give me the, the low. And I'm actually tempted to buy calls when it happens. Depends where vols are. So I'm, I'm very interested. I already have started in technology, much like I started in crypto, averaging in. Okay, final, final question. Uh, 
Do you own the basic attention token from Jeff Moss? I don't, but I know the guys here because Bray Browser's based here in the Cayman Islands. Uh, I don't own it. And, oh, I saw some question about the Wu-Tang Clan. I've missed it. <laughs> Wu-Tang Clan, you're an OG for real now. Uh, thank you, Gandalf Gray. Um, what do you think about the proof of work FUD on power consumption? Do you think it hurts Bitcoin and Litecoin in the future? Uh, final question. Proof of work FUD, it does use energy. We can't pretend it doesn't. It also drives people to the cheapest cost of energy, which happens to be geothermal, EV, and all this other stuff, gas flare-offs. So I think net-net is actually driving the greening of energy. Um, but yes, I mean, people care about this stuff. They really do. I know people think, dismiss it. It's like on those green nutcases. They really fucking care. Um, Gen Z generation really, really fucking cares about this stuff. And people have paid attention. So whether you care or not, people do care. So um, it either has to come from renewable sources that are proven or proof of stake is going gonna, is gonna to help. Again, it's not an argument over Bitcoin or whatever. Bitcoin does its thing and it does it perfectly. Okay, guys, I have now got a very dry throat. I need to drink some more wine and I've got some plenty more to drink and I'll probably smoke that cigar as well. Listen, everyone, have a fantastic Friday. I hope you enjoyed this. It's been a blast. I've no idea what I'm doing. I hope you figured out that I didn't. Excuse, uh, well, please excuse me for all of the swearing, but they didn't give me dwarfs. They didn't give me hot and cold running towels or flunkies. I had nobody to clip my toenails, quaff my hair. I was on my own. What was I going to do? Anyway, cheers. Happy Friday. The Sri Lankan Prime Minister's house set alight. The first is authoritarianism. The second is corruption. The FOMC is strongly resolved to bring inflation down to 2%. The home builders are abandoning homes. Massive protests going on here. We're going to see a material impact here on growth and indeed on earnings, which might pull it. Change is happening and you can fear it. But you're not going to stop it. There are really only two countries in Europe that have managed to maintain a replacement level birth rate, France and Sweden. This is the biggest bubble in the history of the world, and you have no clue. It's all herd mentality. It's the same as the property market. What happens over the next few months could define what happens over the next few years. So we want to make sure that you understand why. You've probably realized that we really have been listening to you.